Well, the key phrase in that opening verse for us is that God tested Abraham. Now, we as the reader know that this is what God is doing from the outset of the story. From the jump, we see that God is testing Abraham. But guess what? Abraham doesn't know. Abraham doesn't know. That's probably a fun little surprise for him by the end, I'm sure. And there's a moment in the story, though, where a light bulb clicks. And Abraham goes, oh, this is a test. All right, so I had one of these experiences in my own life, all right, came after Cherish and I were married. Um, It wasn't Cherish that was putting me to the test. It was actually her parents, all right? So here's what happened. Um, We went, uh, I scheduled a trip, an anniversary trip over a weekend in a swanky hotel, and I was gonna surprise her for it, right? And so I have this whole weekend planned out. We're gonna go and we're gonna stay in a really nice hotel. We're gonna eat a really nice dinner and have a weekend full of activities that are planned. And so we go, I pick Cherish up after we get off work. I go take her to the hotel. Immediately she gets on the phone and she calls her parents, all right? And so here's what happens. She's telling them all about what we're gonna do, about the swanky hotel that we're in. And here's what her parents' response was. All right, you married a good one. Now, here's what was happening, all right? So I thought on the day that we both said I do, that all of the tests that her family had for me were over. But in this moment, a light bulb clicked. And I said, oh, they're still watching me. I was still, I had this realization that I was still being tested in the worth of their daughter, all right? Now, here's the difference of what we're gonna see in tonight's story, all right? My test ends with, uh, is with Cherish's parents and Abraham's is ultimately with God. My test results in a, a happy marriage. Love my wife. We've only grown in our love since that time of testing, and thankfully, I think her parents still love me. And Abraham's, though, it doesn't end with just a happy marriage. It ends with a divine promise, and there's a huge, huge difference, all right? So what we're going to see, what transpires throughout this story from the opening lines to the divine promise, what we'll see is an incredible story, just an absolute incredible story. What we see is incredible sacrifice. We see incredible faith. And then at the very end, we're going to see God's incredible provision. So this is going to be our roadmap for the entire story. Incredible sacrifice, incredible faith, and incredible provision. And as we work through this story, here's what I think God wants to teach us tonight. It's that we leave with a different posture than how we came in. The reality for all of us when we come in here, because we all still struggle with sin, in some area of our life, we are living with clenched fists, and we're walking in here in some facet in our life with clenched fists. This is off limits, God. And what I believe God wants us to do by the time we're out of here is take our fists from clenched to open hands. Because that's what we see happen in Abraham's life. In Abraham's life, we're going to see that he goes from clenched fists to open hands. So my prayer is that through this story, as we wrestle wrestle with what God does in Abraham's life, and we consider how he's at work in our life, that the same thing he did in Abraham's life, he does in our life tonight. That's a big, big ask. 
but we have a big, big God. And as we're about to celebrate through baptism, we also have a God who's alive, which means that he's still at work today. So I have big expectations for how he's gonna to speak to us tonight. So let's work through the story, all right? What we, we'll see how God does this in Abraham's life. We'll consider how he does it in ours. And it begins with the call of incredible sacrifice. We see this in verses one through two. Here's what it says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. This is like a call of submission, this, or this is a response of submission like a soldier coming to the one that is giving and issuing the command, that is how Abraham comes to God. And here's what God says to Abraham. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What we see here, is a call of incredible sacrifice that God lays on the life of Abraham. Abraham's love for Isaac is really clear in this passage through the repetition that we see in the way that God speaks of Isaac, all right? Pay attention to this. He says, take your son. And he doesn't just go on to the command. He says, take your son, your only son. Take your son, not just your son, your only son, and then look what he says. Whom you love. There's no question here about where Abraham's heart is when it comes to his love and care and value of Isaac. And in the midst of this, God instructs Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, all right? So God essentially is testing Abraham's trust here. If you could turn his command into a question, here's what it would be. Do you truly trust me? Do you truly trust me? Up to this point, Abraham's life, the posture of his life has been clenched fists. If you look over the course of his story from Genesis 12 through chapter 21, we see some good moments in there with Abraham. We do. We see some good moments in there. But what we would actually define his life more than open hands would be clenched fists. Because on multiple occasions, we see that Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands. Immediately after God gives him the promise in Genesis chapter 12, what happens? He lies to a human king about Sarah being his sister. Why does he do that? He's taking the matters of his life into his own hands. He's afraid of human authority instead of divine authority. We see this at the end of the same story. We see the repetition of sin, pattern of sin in Abraham's life because what happens when he goes to Abimelech is he does the exact same thing. It's the bookends of his entire story where he's taking matters into his own hands. What falls dramatically in between both the bookends is you see the plot that Abraham does with Sarah to bring fulfillment of God's promise out of their own devices and schemes. What do they do? Hey, let's take my servant, this is Sarah, let's take my servant, Hagar. She can become your wife and God will fulfill his promise for a son and give it to you through Hagar. And what do we see happen? 
clenched fists. They tried to take their own devices to bring about God's promises. And what we see in Abraham's life is a pattern of clenched fists. And so with the promise of a son fulfilled, happened in Genesis chapter 21, God is testing Abraham even still. Do you truly trust me? Now, a couple of things on how we need to apply this, all right? First, we need to understand that this is a unique story in God's redemptive plan, all right? By the end of it, it's very obvious to us that God does not delight in humans sacrificing children, all right? You can laugh a little bit about with that with me because it is true, all right? Okay, so Leviticus 20 proves this. We, we need to think about this. We need to function in, result, in a response to God's character, okay? That's how Abraham, we're going to find that's how Abraham moves forward here in trust and belief in God is out of the response to God's character. But we even see this as revelation happens through the course of human history. Leviticus 20, God actually gives a very clear demand that you should not sacrifice children. It is prohibited. The punishment for it is execution. It is very clear that this is not God's design or plan for us. And so we should not look at this story and then take as a response, well, the feelings that I have or some kind of dream that I have that goes against God's character or goes against his scriptures is what God is calling me to do in this life. There's no way by the end of the story that that can be the, the pattern that we take from this. Instead, what we should see and how we should apply this story to our life is that God does call us to live lives of sacrifice. What the Bible calls this is the denial of self. We see it repeatedly throughout the scriptures. You can see constant commands where God is laying before us that we should deny the pleasures of our human body and our fallen spirits. And instead, we should submit to the commands that God has laid before us. We see this most clearly in Jesus' teaching after he's fed the 5,000. Here's what he says in Luke 9, 23. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, look at this, daily, and follow me. So in life with Christ, God regularly calls us to the denial of self or self-sacrifice. Look, here's how it starts. It starts with submission to Jesus as Lord. What Jesus is saying in Luke 9.23 is that you, when you come to follow me, you're declaring that I am the ultimate authority in your life. That's what it means to declare Jesus as Lord. I am the one, speaking of Jesus, I am the one that has all authority over your life. But it's not a one-time decision as we see in Luke 9, 23. What Jesus is calling us to do is for this to be a regular daily practice where we are denying our flesh, we are denying ourselves, we are self-sacrificing as we follow and live with Jesus in this life. Maybe the most practical example that we see in all the Bible comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. Here's, what he, here's how he starts the whole chapter. Verse 1, he says that we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices. Practically speaking, you are to live out of self-denial as an act of worship. This is what it looks like for us to live and walk 
with Jesus. And then Paul gives us a number of examples in how we're to do this in our life. Here's one of them. We sacrifice and give of our finances. We see very clearly in Jesus' teachings that you cannot have two lords. You cannot have two masters. And what are the two examples that he gives? God and money. What's the way that we practice Jesus' lordship in our life? Ensuring that we do not have other authorities that are demanding and calling the shots on our spirit is that we deny ourselves in order that we may choose what is good and greater, and that's God himself. And what Jesus is laying before us is that we practice the self-denial when it comes to our finances. This is why you see regularly throughout this New Testament, even still, not just Old Testament, but New Testament, that God's command is that we are to give sacrificially, look, through the church, not to the church. We give through the church, not to the church. The way that we see that we are partaking in God's mission here in this world is sacrificially giving of our finances. And where is the primary means by which God is advancing his kingdom throughout the world? It's the church. And so what we are doing is we are giving to the advancement of God's kingdom. We're denying what is good in this world, which is finances. These are God's resources. He's given them to us. They aren't bad. They are good. What we are doing is we are denying ourselves to use all of our finances for ourselves, And then we're giving it to the advancement of God's kingdom. That happens through giving through the church, not just to the church. It's It's not our desire here at this church that we are just accumulating lumps and sums of money. We want to use that in order to see the advancement of God take place in this world. Secondly, we see that we sacrifice and use our God-given gifts for others and not for ourselves. Look, every time that the Bible talks about God-given gifts that he gives to you, when we accept Jesus as Lord is of our life, the Holy Spirit gives you unique gifts. Every time that it's used, it's always used for the advancement of other people. God gives you gifts, not so that you can build a platform for yourself, but so that other people can look more like Jesus. You're to use your gifts in order to serve others so that they can be built up. They can be ready to walk with Jesus, that they have partners in this life to follow and walk with Jesus so that they may look more and more like him as we live life together as the church. The last one, we sacrifice our interests for the interests of others. What Paul says in Romans chapter 12 is that we outdo one another in showing honor. That we consider other people's interests above our own that we show them honor and that we actually, if there's any competition, is that we're trying to put each other's interests above our own. And so what we need to be wrestling with, it's never a question of if God is calling us to the denial of self or self-sacrifice, but how. How is God calling me to practice self sacrifice. God lays and issues the command, sacrifice your son. This is his prized possession. It looks different for us because we're not Abraham, but the call is still the denial of self, self self-sacrifice. So not the question of if, but how and where. 
So God calls Abraham to practice incredible sacrifice here. It should also lead us to consider how we are to practice self-sacrifice as well. Next, we see that Abraham practices incredible faith. We see this in verses 3 through 8. So here's what it says. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took him uh, two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burning offering and set out to go to the place of God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. That's important for the future. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac becomes aware of what's going on and spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And Abraham replies, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but there's the lamb. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responded, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. And here we see Abraham practice incredible faith. In fact, Bible teachers say that the story goes into slow motion here. It speeds up in verses 1 through 2, but slows down because we see a lot of details in verses 3 through 8. Because what Moses is trying to do here is put Abraham's faith in high definition. He wants us to see the links by which Abraham is moving and functioning in faith in these verses moving forward. Here's how Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Meaning that you live with deep conviction that what is promised will come to pass. That what God says is true is actually going to happen in the future and it affects the way that you live in the now. And that's exactly what we see from Abraham here. In the midst of dire circumstances, Abraham lives with deep conviction that God will keep his promises. This is the first signs that we see in Abraham's life that he's moving from clenched fists to open hands. Because here how, here's how the text shows it to us. All right, Abraham is quick to obey. Here's what it says in this story. He got up early in the morning. This is the sign that he is quick to obey. He's not hesitating. He's waking up and he's taking on the hard thing first, and that's to go in obedience to the command that God has placed on his life. Abraham prepares for sacrificial worship. We see that he brings all of the resources that are needed in order to offer the sacrifice to God. There's split wood, there's fire, and there's a knife. And then look what the response is to Isaac in verse 8. Abraham expects God to provide. Isaac, where's the lamb? Abraham's response, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. There's two options here. In Abraham's mind, there's two options. Either God is going to provide another sacrifice in place of Isaac, or Isaac will be sacrificed, but God is so faithful that he will resurrect the dead. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. The author of Hebrews says that Abraham 
believed so much in God that it was as if a resurrection happened in this entire sacrifice. Now, here's what we need to wrestle with, all right? We marvel at stories of faith like this. I mean, we read stories of faith like this and we're like, wow, what an incredible man of faith. But when push comes to shove, our response is, I just never want God to do that in my life. I never want to be put in that circumstance. I never want that to be my situation. Our regular prayers are God only favor. God only give me favor. Never hardship, only give me favor. I was convicted about this in my own life this past week. As I was reading through this story, if I'm really honest with you, that's my prayer regularly. God, favor, give me your favor. God, may your favor rest on this house. May your favor rest on my family. May my kids only flourish in this life. God, would you not let Satan have a foothold in this home? Those are my prayers. But look, no challenges means limited experience of God. The testimony of saints Believers of Christ that have gone before us, the witness of them says that adversity and testing is what brings growth and intimacy in this life with God. Here's two of them, all right? Thomas Chalmers, if you look at his life, regular, consistent wrestlings and struggle with depression. Here's what he says. It is in those times of hopeless chaos, speaking of his depression, when the sovereign hand of God is most likely to be seen. Translation, do you want to see God at work in your life? Then you don't just pray that God would never bring challenging times or testing in your life, but you pray that you would seize it in order that he would make clear the work of his hand. Thomas Watson, who was imprisoned because of his, of his faith, here's what he said. When God lays men upon their backs, then they look up to heaven. Translation, when life gets so hard that it puts you on your back, that's when heaven opens up. That's when intimacy and relationship with God rings in your life. So here's what we need to wrestle with. Like, do you want to know God? Do you want to experience intimacy and affection? Do you want to be a part of seeing God do incredible things? Then you need to wrestle with the dichotomy, God only favor. Instead, you wrestle with God whenever you bring seasons of testing. Would you only allow me to remain faithful so that I may see your goodness and your kindness and your advancement of my growth and looking like Jesus in this life through that time of testing, All right? So look, there are incredible promises that God gives us in the New Testament. Here's some of them, all right? And I wanna apply this question. How is God calling me to practice faith in his promises? Listen to these promises and then let's wrestle with that question. God promises to give us wisdom when we ask him for it. That's James 1.5. 
Here's my question for you. Do you seek the wisdom of man before you seek the wisdom of God? Who do you turn to first? Do you turn to a person in your life? Or do you turn to prayer to the God of the universe first? Who are you asking for for wisdom? It's not that you don't ask another person in your life, but who's your first step? The promise is that when we ask God for wisdom, that it's his delight to give it. Second one, God promises to provide a way out of temptation. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Here's my question for you. When you're in that moment where temptation feels so strong and so weighty, whose strength do you rely on? Your strength or the strength of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you? The Holy Spirit is strong. The same Spirit that lived in Jesus and empowered him to walk and live in this life is the same Spirit that lives in you. Yet we so regularly depend on our own strength in times of temptation rather than pleading and praying to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Third, God promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's Hebrews 13, 5. This promise comes in the context of money. So look, when things get financially tight, is your gut response how, I'm, how, <clears throat> how am I going to provide? Or is it how is God going to provide this time? Because he's faithful. He's never untrue to his promises. Last one. God promises to finish the work of salvation that he started in you. That's Philippians 1.6. Do you doubt God's promise that he will bring this to fulfillment because you haven't made the progress that you expected at this point in your life? Here's what you're really wrestling with. That God's completed work is dependent on your responses in the here and now and not on what God has done in human history through his son, Jesus Christ. Simplified way of saying that, you believe that your justification rests on your sanctification and not the reverse. That's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that God will bring to completion what he started in you when you put your worst foot forward in trusting Jesus Christ. That's your hope. That's God's promise. So go back to the question, how is God calling me to practice faith in his promises? Which one is it for you? Where is God inviting you to step in an incredible faith? to trust his incredible promises that he's given to you. May God shape us into people of incredible faith that just as Abraham is moving from a person of clenched fists to open fists or open hands, may that be our story as well. All right, so God has called Abraham to practice incredible sacrifice. In return, we see Abraham model incredible faith. And in the final scene, we see God's incredible Provision. Here's what happens in 9 through 14. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. 
He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. The only time that we see a name called on twice in a row here. And he replied, here I am. Verse 12, then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. What do we see here? God's incredible provision. The angel of the Lord stops Abraham in the act. Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And God provides a sacrifice. And listen to this, ram that is caught in the thicket by its thorns. It's an unblemished sacrifice. It's not caught up by the body. It's caught up by the thorns. God does the incredible provision in providing the sacrifice here that we could never hope or dream of that God would do it apart from his divine provision. That's what happens here in this story. We also see that Abraham has gone from a person that lives with clenched fists to open hands because we see Abraham has fear of God. That's what happens in verse 12. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. What is happening here, what Bible teachers call this is filial fear. All right, Filial fear is fear that a child has for his parent. That you have such love and respect that you show that you want to please them and make them proud with every step that you take in this life. Not because of their stature, but because of their character. That's what happens in Abraham's story. Why does Abraham move forward in obedience? Why does he have incredible faith? It's because of the character of God. You know what Abraham does? He looks back on the previous 25 years. Every step of the way, God, you've proven yourself to be faithful and true. Every promise that you've given me, you've always come through. All the times that I've failed you, all of your grace and mercy has been poured on me. When he's lied, what has happened? God has provided. Lavishly given him riches at the hands of those authorities that he feared. What happens whenever Abraham goes to Sarah, gets with Hagar, has Ishmael, God says, that's not the one. What happens in Genesis 21? He provides. He turns their laughter of doubt into a laughter of joy. Every step of the way, Abraham looks at God's character and says he's always remained true to his promises. So here's our step here. Incredible sacrifice and incredible faith are always worth it because of God's incredible provision. You can truly trust him. You can practice self-denial 
because of God's pattern and incredible provision. When we choose to walk in response to God's call to live in the denial of self, and we deny good things in this life, in response to the kindness of Christ in our life and walking and living in the advancement of God's kingdom, what you see happen whenever you make sacrifice in this life, God's typical response is that he gives back with interest. That's what you see in Mark 10, verses 29 through 30, when his disciples are like, we gave up everything, we followed you, Jesus. What is his response? You'll receive a hundred times more than what you sacrificed. Sometimes in this life, but always in eternity. So, I mean, the form of it will vary, but here's some of the like, responses that I saw in a book this week. He says, like, whenever you give up your house, your return oftentimes is a better house. It's just the form of it will vary. So it may not be a nicer, more luxurious house, but the better could be that you have time, more time with your family because you live in closer proximity to where you work, or that God has given you greater fruitfulness in ministry, meaning that you get to witness to more people. Their hearts are ready. They're ready to respond to the good news of Jesus. The form may vary, but usually God's pattern is that when we sacrifice, God gives back with interest. Sometimes the gift may simply just be the presence of God in the midst of earthly loss. Look, that is better. It's better. All of the empty promises that God's creation tries to afford us are found empty in the fullness of the pleasure of God's presence with us. And so you can always, it's always worth it. You will never regret making sacrifice for God. The things that you will regret are when you say no. But even more than this, our greatest confidence of God's provision, and this is what is ultimately this whole passage is pointing to, is the provision that we have in Jesus Christ. Notice what Abraham names the Mount of Moriah here. It's future tense. The Lord will provide. Why future tense? Abraham has just experienced how God has provided an alternate sacrifice than Isaac. Why, why not present tense? Why not past tense? Why future tense? Well, this entire story is pointing to God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Isaac. He's the beloved son. Isaac is the beloved son of Abraham. Jesus is the beloved son of God. They both experience miraculous birth experiences. Abraham, Abraham sees Isaac born when he's 100 years old. How does Jesus come into this world? He's conceived by a virgin Mary. What do we see in Isaac as they're heading to the mount? The wood that is intended for the sacrifice is put on Isaac's back and he carries it up the mountain. What do we know about Jesus? He carries his own cross. Both are obedient to their fathers. Look, as we look at Isaac in this story, he's probably about 15. Abraham's 100. Like, you choosing who's going to win that fight? It's probably a 15-year-old. <laughs> But 
what do we see in Isaac? He's obedient. He's bound. He's put on top of the wood. God ultimately provides something else than Isaac, but what we see in Jesus is that he is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. The land of Moriah would later be known as Jerusalem. Just outside of Jerusalem is the Mount of Calvary. On the, mount, on the very Mount Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice. Jesus, we become our ultimate sacrifice on the very same place. This whole entire story is pointing us to what God is doing in redemptive history and fulfilling his promise that he's going to restore right relationship with you. That last promise that we talked about earlier, Philippians 1.6, that God will complete his work of salvation in your life, may be the one that we wrestle with the most. You know what your confidence is? that God will fulfill the good work he started in you is that Jesus is the ultimate promise, fulfilled promise that he gave us in Genesis 3. Because God always keeps his promises. You can live in faith that he's gonna follow through with the thing that he promised he's gonna fulfill in you. The testimony of all of the Bible, of every saint that has walked with Christ, is that God is always faithful. So look, the response for us, we came in here with clenched fists. As we look at what God has done in this passage throughout redemptive history, ultimately on the Mount of Calvary, in Christ for us, it's this. I can always move forward in the denial of self because I know that my God keeps his promises. I can move forward with a life of faith because I know that I have a God that keeps his promises. I've experienced ultimate provision because God keeps his promises. That's what he did in the life of Jesus. Jesus is alive at the right hand of God. He's interceding on your behalf. You can trust him. And the response is this. And so the call and the plea is that God, would you help me move forward one foot at a time? It's not that God is calling you right now to move forward in faith at, like you would at 75 or 80. He's just calling you to move forward in faith. It happened in Abraham's life after 115 years. Look, one step. God, I'm going to trust you. Another step. God, I'm going to trust you. God, I'm going to look back at your testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of other witnesses of the faith, one step forward, open hands. God, anytime I'm with clenched fist, help me open my hands because of what you've done in Abraham's life, what you've done throughout the scriptures, what we see in Jesus, and ultimately what I see you doing in my life too. So the question, look, 
Will you go from this to this as you walk out those doors tonight? That's God's invitation to you. You have a good, good God. What we're gonna do is we're gonna sing about him. We're gonna take a meal that reminds us of God's faithfulness to us. We're gonna see that God is still alive through three baptisms, death to life, resurrection stories that have happened in our time here and now. And then we're gonna stand, we're gonna sing, and we're gonna rejoice that our God is good and he can be trusted. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.